It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Walking beside an oak woodland deep in the heart of Wiltshire. And I can hear the plaintive cries of what possibly might be a baby kite or a baby buzzard, not quite sure. And this oak woodland and its surrounding parkland are part of the Bowood House estate, big stately home that uh, sits just near Cheppenham. I've come here to meet. Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, who's better known as the Black Farmer. I'm looking forward to hearing from him about his own experience of the countryside, what he's up to these days, and how he's hoping to bring more young people from ethnic backgrounds into the rural world and into working in the rural world. My name's Fergus Collins. I'm the host of the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. This is the latest episode in our season, A Taste of the Countryside, where we're meeting farmers and food producers and and talking about their work. So listen on, I'm off to meet Wilfred. And you can contact me about any issues raised by emailing me. My address is editor at countryfile.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Wilfred, lovely to meet you. Well, in thank the wilds you. of Wiltshire. We're definitely in the wilds of Wiltshire. It's very dry We're, underfoot, isn't it? Well, yes, I mean, it's actually, it's a bit like being back in um, Jamaica, in fact. <laughs> it's so yeah. dry. But, um, yeah, you know, we're desperate for some rain, and no doubt it will come in its own good time. In its own good time. Well, let's hope so. Yeah. Um, so you've got, you're a farmer. Um, you've, can you tell me a little bit about your farming background and... Oh, God, my background is a, it's a story in itself because, in fact, I'm of the Windrush generation. Right. So I came to this country 
um, when I was three years old. I was actually born in a place called um, Frankfield Clarendon. And so, in fact, if you went there today, you would see that it's quite rural. There's a lot of subsistence farmers working the land. That's in Jamaica, is That's it? in Jamaica, yeah. And so um, people like my parents, who had an opportunity to actually come to this country, decided that they would actually come over here. I was then left to be brought up by my um, relatives and then came and joined them when I was four years old. And then we were brought up in a place um, called Small Heath in, um, Small Heath in Birmingham. And I want you to try and imagine this. There is 11 of us living in a two-up, two-down terrace house. So, you know, I'm used to three to a bed. Yeah. I can remember my mother trying to feed 11 people one chicken. And so as a way of supplementing the family income, my father had an allotment. And it was my job as the oldest boy to look after this allotment. And the allotment became my oasis away from living in this sort of urban jungle. Yeah, yeah. And I can remember, at the age of 11, just loving being in this environment, thinking, one day I'd like to own my own farm. Because there's nothing that lifts the spirit more than being amongst nature. Yeah, we're just heading onto some there's an oak and... Um, this, is a, this is a walnut tree, I think. Yeah. This is, this is a... Yeah. Sweet chestnut. Sweet chestnut trees. Yeah. It's just wonderful. And so w what it does is that it helps you to put things into perspective. And um, when you're living in an urban environment, you could tend to feel that everything is man-made. Yeah. But when you come out amongst nature, it really does um, remind you that you're just part of things bigger and greater than yourselves. So you could see why it's a fantastic tonic mm. to come out in the countryside as often as possible because it just puts everything in your life into sort of perspective. And so I could imagine that when I was an 11-year-old boy, when I was on my father's allotment and just being amongst um, greenery in nature, it, 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 it brought about that sort of feeling. And then I spent the next 35 years um, trying to um, get my own farm. What's fantastic, actually, we're now here amongst these trees and it's, it's the atmosphere is very different to where we were yeah. um, walking a moment ago on the savannah it's it, like we're enclosed what it is it, what, what, what's, it's as though these trees are wrapping their arms around us <laughs> and, okay. and yeah. it's um, it's, and it's, it just feels quite welcoming mm. and it's it, I don't know whether again coming outside into the countryside it sort of brings out the poetry in us but um, I just think automatically I just thought oh I'm amongst friends here uh, I mean, just how you sort of went from that to... Because I know you worked in TV. For oh, God, yeah, I mean, the, TV... Do, do, can we talk about that? Yeah. So, yeah, so um, I... Well, I'm one of those kids that left school without any qualifications. Um, school was a real nightmare for me. And one of the reasons it was it's so difficult um, is that I'm dyslexic. And that's one of my great passions, is that I think that many of um, people end up on society's dustbin heap because people don't really understand that dyslexia is a gift, that the whole of the educational system is all about funneling people to be going in one direction. And there isn't enough understanding and, and knowledge about those of us who are dyslexic and the contribution we make to society. Mm. And why is it that most of the entrepreneurs are dyslexic? 
And one of the things I, I think is that if you're dyslexic and you're in this environment where they're sort of chucking information at you and you have no way of understanding what's going on, you have to find another way of making sense of the world that you live in. So you're trained to think outside the box. So that is a skill in itself. And so those people who've been through what I call the standard educational system, they're very linear because they've never been trained to think outside the, the box. And therefore, I think in time, people are going to recognize that dyslexia is a gift, that actually people are going to be putting it on their CVs because people are going to be jumping at those people because there'll be a much greater understanding that people like myself have a, a big contribution to make. So what that meant that as a 16-year-old kid leaving school without any qualifications at all, that there wasn't really much options available to me because everybody would tell you, send in your CV and what qualifications, exams you have, etc. And if you've got nothing, not many options were available to you. That's one of the reasons why I then joined the army, not because actually I had any passion for being in the military. I just know that I would have been well, seen... Well, you didn't have qualifications. Didn't I have any qualifications. It's not, it's not intelligence. It's, the, it's, the, it's, it's the, as you say, the linear progress yeah, that yeah. everyone is expected to take so path. Yeah. I then joined the army, but in those days, if you were a black guy with attitude, one or two things were going to happen to you. You're either going to be disciplined and do as you're told, or you're going to get kicked out of the army. So the only qualification that I have to my name is a dishonourable discharge from the army. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so you can see, I'm an 18-year-old kid yeah. uh, from society's dustbin heap, a failure at everything that I um, tried. And um, what was really interesting is that in those days, if you were a failure at everything, they just thought, oh, you know what, chuck them into catering. And one of the things you have to celebrate this, the celebrity chefs for is that they made catering a sexy profession to go into. Mm. In my day, it was all the stupid people that went into catering. And luckily, I liked it. So I went to catering college, I learned to be a chef, and then I worked in various um, burger joints and all that sort of stuff. But this dream, and this is why I'm a, I'm a real believer that you have to have a, a, a dream and that if this was an American audience, they would really understand what I'm talking about. Because the idea that you could be bigger than where you were brought up in, you know, the opportunities to conquer the world, it's very much ingrained in, in, the, in their sort of psyche. The British are very, very different, quite sort of, you know, reticent to sort of thinking and believing why, big. Why do you think that is? Is it just part of our nature or is it circumstance or what is the... Well, it's why, the, I think it, well, it's, a, it's, it's to do with class, it's to do with our, our nature. The, the, the people with power want to keep it the same mm. and therefore the thing about being entrepreneurial is about how you're changing the status quo and because the, the, the struggles that we've had in this country, that our class system, which is all about people wanting to protect what they have Ooh. and keeping everybody else out. Well, the countryside is the, riven with this. And exactly. Say, yeah. And so, you know, people like me then coming in to shake that up. You I'm know. very excited to hear how you, how you shook it up. Well, I'm, what, I, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just starting to shake it up because yeah. the, 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 what I always say to people is this. The rule of nature is that you don't want anything interbred and you've got to actually rotate mm. because actually, you know, you, you'll either get weak animals or you just won't get grown through. So diversity mm. is, is the lesson that nature is teaching us. So why, when the countryside doesn't adopt that in terms of the diversity of people that actually are welcomed into um, uh, this environment? Gosh, we've leapt straight to it. So, well, look, 
that's a really interesting subject. So you've got a farm. I know we, oh, yeah, there's yeah, fine, a gap yeah. in the CV at the I'm moment. Going, no, 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 let me finish. It's just <laughs> such a long story. But uh, this is an important part of my story, actually, because yeah. when I was in catering, I had this dream to have my own farm. And I knew that I was never going to be in a position to buy this farm uh, unless I earned some money. Because the problem is also, for a lot of people who want to um, get a farm, is that farms are tradi traditionally handed down to the generations. Mm. And um, you could only get a farm if you're rich, you make a lot of money. And, um, and the only other option is that if you lease land, and one of the problems then is that the people who, the landlords, which is something I've got a real issue with people like the Church of England, National Trust, English Heritage own a lot of land, but they just lease it out to the same old traditional families. They could do a lot more to bring um, sort of diversity in. So I knew I had to do something spectacular if I was ever going to get, get in a position. Okay. Get some Well, again, be bold. Everything, uh, my story is that of audacity and boldness. Mm. And I'm a great believer that if you think it and you believe it, things will happen. And it was pretty simple. I thought, right, I want to get a job in the BBC, which is pretty audacious because, you know, but if you are really, my philosophy in life is this, you need two things to achieve anything in life. And the very successful people have these two things. You need to be ruthlessly, ruthlessly focused. And what I mean by that is that you're able to get rid of the white noise of living. Most people's lives are full of a lot of stuff that really don't matter. And the times they actually understand that is when they're very poorly or when they're on death's door. Things really get focused into what's really important. Really? So we, I do think we, we are... We're not wasting a lot of time, or we, we are, are wasting. We're, we're, we're losing. We are uh, wasting a lot of time. And again, back to what, the reason why we're here. When you come into the countryside, it helps perspective. Mm, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Absolutely. And so that's why, if you want to be reminded of um, perspective, get in the countryside because it, it gets rid of all the other nonsense, basically, mm. and it helps you to focus on what's important. So focus is very, very important. And the second, which is far more important than the first, is that you need to have passion. Mm. And a lot of people poo-poo passion. But, you know, what I like about passion is that passion defies logic. It defies reason. It doesn't make sense. It helps you get up over the hurdles. And I say, have you ever seen somebody when they're in love? They do crazy things. They are so driven that to do things that don't make sense. And that's the thing that you need in order to make things sort of happen. And if you understand it's those two things that you need, then you could achieve anything Focus that you want. Focus and passion. Focus. So you, you join the BBC, you've got your... Yeah. Well, but again, the, 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 the story how I got into the BBC, which is an important story, because I, you know, nobody would, you can imagine, because I'm dyslexic, you know, nobody would. No qualifications. No qualifications. qualifications. Nothing, and not even those would be yeah. worth any stuff. But how I got in was that I would, you know, at the, at the time at BBC Pebble Mill, they used to have security guards that would let people in and out of the buildings. And the security guards were in huts, and they hated getting out of these huts. So I said, look, I will open the barriers for you all day long, you know, within the cold and the rain. And I thought, well, if this idiot's prepared to do that, we'll say yes. So I did that for months. From then I then met the cleaners, who then I said, can I come and help you clean the office? They said yes. And then this happened. I met a guy, and I remember his name to this day. His name was Jock Gallagher. And I was very enthusiastic as a young guy. I said, look, I'd love to get into television. And he says, look, 
you're not the sort of person that we in pro intelligence because you don't have the qualifications and you know you've got a bit of an attitude problem <laughs> but he said what i'll do is that i'll give you a job as a runner for three months and to see what happens now that man having the courage to give me that break then started a long career in television so the other thing i always advocate to people is find your guardian angels yeah a mentor yeah right find them because yeah. every single thing that i've ever achieved somebody's gone out of their way to give me a break yeah. so that is the key thing because you'll never do it on your own you've got to find those people and you won't find those people unless you're prepared to put it out there again one of the things about the british they're reserved and they don't like to sort of put it out there in case we might put them down but that so that's how i we're ended afraid up being of failure we're afraid I, of, of I, having our pride hurt exactly and, um, so, so we don't, don't stick our stick our necks out enough so that's why that story is important because you got a guy from society's dustbin heap getting into the BBC. I traveled the world making programs about food and drink. Most of the big name celebrity chefs, I gave them their first break in television because in the days when I was in the BBC, we used to shoot film, mm. not like the stuff you guys have now, which all digital and all that. So, so what, anybody could go out and bloody record something and then it's put together <laughs> in the cutting room. QED. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're going to stick it all together in the cutting room. Yeah. But in those days, film was so expensive, it had to be really disciplined. I can remember Gordon Ramsay having to come to my flat so I could teach him how to perform in front of the camera just so when we're going to shoot. So you're, to, you're to blame, are you? Well, you know, you've got to give the guy credit. You know, you don't get that sort of achievement unless, again, you've got passion and focus. Mm. You know, it's, and again, you look hey, at it. Maybe you were his guardian angel. Well, you know, we all help and inspire people along the way. And I think one, one of the fantastic things in life is to be able to, you know, look at the people that you've helped. Because I know I wouldn't be here unless people had sort of helped me, really. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so it's a very long um, story, but I just thought it's very, very important because it's very easy to look at me, look at the way that I speak and think, God, this guy is from an advantaged, privileged background, but he's not. I mean, I'm just somebody who actually has become what I am now because I had the courage to chase my dream. So I have to thank the countryside for inspiring me to um, to keep going. And giving you the focus. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and now you've, you ended up in the countryside. You, you got the wherewithal to... Buy some, you bought the land, did you? That's right, yeah. So my farm is under Devon Cornwall border. And the reason we're not there now is because actually I'm in Chippenham. I have a fulfillment centre in, in Chippenham. And so I live between my farm in Devon, Chippenham and, and, and in London. So just going around in circles all the time. But yeah, when I bought my farm, I can remember that um, when I told my family and friends that I was going to buy a farm down in Devon, they went, whoa! You know, don't they lynch black people down there? There's this. <laughs> Are they still in Birmingham? There's Birmingham and London. Yeah. Okay. And even today, there is this assumption that um, in the countryside that there is hostility towards people of colour. Still, that is assumption. Now, I could understand where that assumption comes from because still in the countryside, you know, people will will refer to um, black people as coloured, not black. And they're not doing it because they're racist. It's about a lack of knowledge, a lack of, you know, what is acceptable. And um, you're not going to bring about change until you get more black people feeling comfortable to come down there so there could be a better understanding of how we sort of converse with each other. Still today, there is a, there is a backwards thinking in terms of um, what it's like to live in a, a diverse society. So this, you're talking about rural rural communities? R rural yeah. communities. So don't have that. 
yeah, from your perspective. They, 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 don't, they don't have that. And it's, it is as though you ha you're in two separate countries, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a great believer it is outsiders who see opportunity. Because when I bought my farm, I could see this massive gap between urban and rural Britain. You, and I said, right, I'm going to create a brand that's going to help to try and bridge that gap. And what I wanted to do was also to demonstrate that being black doesn't mean that you are part of a, an ethnic minority, is that you're part of a mainstream. I wanted to be mainstream because usually when any black people create brands, it's tend to be aimed at the ethnic market. And I thought I want to do something that is quintessentially British. So I thought, what is British? Well, you can't get anything more British than a sausage. So I thought, right, I'm going to do a sausage. So you've got pigs on your farm, is it? No, no my no. farm doesn't have pigs, actually. We have cattle. So okay. it, the, the part of um, the part of Devon that I am, it's really, it, because there's a lot of clay there. And so it's really for um, dairy herds and sort of cattle. So it's, it's, I'm a lazy farmer, basically. I don't, you know, you look at me, I'm not a proper farmer. I mean, I got my next door neighbors that does all the hard work, getting the silage, cutting the hay, looking after all the sort of cattle and basically we just finish off so basically they just come to beef eat cattle, it. Is it? Beef yeah, cattle yeah. yeah so it's dairy and beef cattle there so even though most of my products are um, pork we don't do any pork on my farm at all i've only got 30 acres so in terms of it being economically viable yeah. you, you couldn't really do you're the, you're, you're the black smallholder the bl black smallholder <laughs> it doesn't quite have the same ring though. it doesn't have it doesn't you know i'm a marketeer so you've got yeah. to know you know how it's quite interesting actually talking about marketing because when I was thinking about creating this brand, you know, I thought I'm going to do sausages, and then I think I was asking myself, well, what am I going to call it? And um, it suddenly came to me. All of my next door neighbours used to call me the Black Farmer. Mm. And so I that's, thought, that's where it comes from. It wasn't uh, something you came up no, with. No, they, 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 they call me the Black Farmer. Yeah. But being a marketeer, I thought, bloody hell, you know, that's a bloody good brand name. Not only is it a really good brand name, um, no one else could nick the idea. And um, it has an edge to it because people are not too sure about whether it's politically correct or not. Mm. Some people are not sure. And a lot of black people in business, they feel they have to hide their blackness in order to be accepted by the mainstream. But what I did, and this is a, this is a really important story for those people who are thinking about developing businesses, is that I, even I was slightly a bit worried about calling my brand the Black Farmer. And I said, you know what, Wilfred, the sensible thing to do is go and do some research. And I did all the classic research that you're meant to do. And the research came back and says, do not call it the Black Farmer because people will be offended. Well, who, who would be offended then? Who would, is it the well, people white, still were, white community? The white community. Yeah, okay. and, um, and this is the lesson. Research would tell you what people were thinking yesterday. Research could tell you what people are thinking today, but research cannot tell you what people are thinking tomorrow. Mm. That's where you need to have a strong vision about where you want to go and have the courage to sort of go with well, it. Well, that's the courage thing because you've got... Well, there's two types of people, you see. There are left-brainers who are rational and it has to add up, it all has to make sense. Those people are not the people who change the world. Mm. It's right-brainers who, who, who dream, who make mm. the impossible possible. And, and one of the things about the educational system as well, it's, it's geared towards left-brainers. So the right-brainers are the ones who have the audacity to say, well, no, you know, we can make this different. And these are the people, I think, who inspire, who bring change. Because the rational thing would be a black guy going down to Devon to have a farm does not add up.
So most of the things in my life, and that's why it's important telling my story, does not add up. There's no logic to it. Mm. And if I was basing my decisions on what was logical and rational and reasonable, I would not have achieved the success that I've done. So I would say to people, one of the things that they do not actually take hold of is their emotional intelligence. You know, they, they submerge their emotional intelligence and replace it with um, actually evidence, data, research to base all their decisions. When you're basing your decisions on that, you're always catching up. Are you talking up. about gut instinct here? Also? Gut instinct, um, you know, you, it's about trusting the way that right. you feel. Whereas if you're always going on the evidence, you're always catching up. Oh my goodness, that's how we all seem to work these days. And so data doesn't, data doesn't innovate. It just tells you what people are thinking and feeling now. Yeah. And, and most of the world is run on that. And, you know, there's certain disciplines that need to be based on data in, and um, research, like medicine. Mm. But, you know, if you want to change the world, you have to be able to trust your emotional intelligence. All the great inventions mm. have come about because somebody broke the rules of how you go about doing things. So... So you broke the rules with the black, I, black farmer Broke, broke the rules. But yeah, and then what happened, you see, is that I can remember when people would say, you know, it's usually some white liberals would say, oh, you can't go, you know, referring to yourself as the black farmer. And I says, well, I am black. You know, they said, you know, you should, you know, I said, what do you want me to do? Call yourself the Afro-Caribbean farmer? It doesn't have the same ring to it, you yeah. see what I mean? And so this, you know, this wokeness that we talk about, about what is the right thing and what is not the right thing to do, again can cause all this confusion because actually you've got to go with what people's intentions are rather than saying the right or wrong thing and it's a bit like what i was saying earlier on about people in the countryside that may be referring to somebody as colored a lot of people would think that because somebody refers to somebody as colored that they're racist they're not racist it's just a nonsense to accuse people of being racist because they're referring to me they're not referring to me correctly the correct term which is black um, but referring. it doesn't offend you. It doesn't you know, offend you, me because you know their intentions. Because you know their intentions, but you know. And do you I think, think it offends other perhaps people who aren't as well, it immersed does. in the countryside. Well, so, it does. So, so other black because I think of black walking groups who've set up to sort of mutually supportive ways. Because we're going to talk about getting more ethnic yeah. groups into the countryside, and that's you talked about getting more diversity. Yeah. That's one way people are doing it by sort of sort of safety in numbers and going out and creating these sort of walking groups and climbing groups and cycling groups. Yeah, but you see, I, I could understand why people um, do that. But the first thing I'm saying is, I know that I could trust my my um, community well. You know, I could leave the doors open. They're, 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 they're looking after my interests. So the fact that they are not as sophisticated in using the correct language in referring to people of colour should not be held against them. But I also know that a lot of black people, when they come to the countryside, you know, feel that actually they're stared at and that um, they feel that they need to have support groups. And I, if somebody was strange, well, it doesn't matter what colour they are, I was walking down the street, I was in the local pub, I would be staring at them. Because what is interesting about being part of the countryside is that knowing each other is part of your protection. And so if you're different, whether you're black or white, you are going to be stared at. You know, right, people okay. are going to be curious about what, you know, what are you doing here type of stuff. I do it all the time. You know, somebody coming down the lane, you know, it's about, well, you know, who's that man? Who the heck are you? Because yeah. it's, it's part of the culture of being, um, being in, in the countryside. Now, if you're black 
um, you have a massive disadvantage because what you've always got to do is get over the assumptions that people make of your color. I'll give you some fantastic examples. A lot of the time, still today, if I'm walking into a big corporate building in a nice suit or something like that, I'll go to reception and the, what they'll say to me is, who are you here to pick up? That happens to me Did all the really time. Uh, that is what focus. happens to me. Yeah. So this is why I'm, you know, this is why it's really good to have this sort of discussion mm. for you to understand how black people need to be think about things that you doesn't it doesn't even have to, you doesn't even enter your mind. It, and and another thing we talk about white privilege is that something well, that you're prepared to because that's yeah, a, well, that's I, a very, it's, a, it's um, quite interesting term. Yeah, but it's it's a really really good conversation because. I'm privileged. I'm really, really privileged. And when you get to a certain level in society, it doesn't really matter what colour you are. I say to my children, for example, who went to boarding school and everything, I say, they're more privileged than white privilege, okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with privilege. It's what you do with the privilege. And to understand that actually, you don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to be embarrassed by the fact that you're privileged. It's about what do you do with that sort mm. of um, privilege. But it's that same. It's that thing. If I walk into a reception in a smart me, suit, they're going to assume I'm exactly. That's me. You're being treated differently uh, yeah. directly because of. And every color. single situation that I go into. So what happens is that as a black person, you prepare for it. This happened to me last week. I'm. I. You know. I'm, I've got my flat in London. I've, posh part of London. I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be posh. I'm sitting in my Lexus. And then all of a sudden... Other cars are available. <laughs> yeah, yeah, other cars are available. And then all of a sudden, um, a woman gets into the back of my Lexus and says, um, I'm going down to Palm Mall, please. It, it was, a, it was right. really, as God is my witness, it was really shocking. Because here I am. You just charge her an absolute no, but I just thought, but the assumption, no, yeah. she wasn't being racist. How does that make you feel, though? Well, and this is what I'm trying for you to understand yeah. how black people feel. Now, I'm privileged, yeah. and, you know, all it's easy for that sort of stuff to, to go off the bat. But, you know, if you're a black person struggling through life and you're just having to deal with those mm. assumptions all the time, I could laugh it off. And I, I tell it at jokes because I couldn't believe it. There's me thinking I'm the biggest thing since sliced bread and somebody comes into the back of my car, posh car yeah, and, and saying, you know, off the power of piece. In terms of understanding what people call black chippiness, it's to understand that all their lives are having to make those sort of calculations about actually people might have these sort of assumptions. You know, for instance, when I put up my first polytunnel in Devon, somebody called out the police because thinking that I was using it to grow ganja. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, so that's why that's it's an, it, just it, an assumption. It's all of assumptions, and so uh, okay, if, if you okay. could try and understand that, yeah, that's yeah. What well, I'm well, I think that's uh, so. You've you've gained this position of sort of status yeah. and privilege, I suppose. Is mm. What you're saying. Um, what would you say to other black people then? I mean, there's not many. <coughs> are there many other black farmers or land, <coughs> landowners? Or? No, there isn't. And so, I mean, the thing is, this is that it, it's a, again, it's about how can you get perspective and the, uh, and the long view. Mm. So we hear again in the countryside that helps you get perspective. And the reality is this, is that any immigrant group will have horrendous stories to tell you. You know, the Irish would have, would have their stories, the blacks, the Asians, the last group would have been the Poles. You know, everybody will have their stories about assumptions, persecutions and all of that sort of stuff. 
And the change comes when more people like me become part of the mainstream and get into positions of power where you can help to start making the change. So there's a lot of things that I'm interested in doing. So, you know, I'm a governor at Sirencester Agriculture College, for example. Yeah. Now, Sirencester Agriculture is, was always the... Um, college for the privilege where the landowners. This is just the university. The university, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Royal Ag University. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, again, to get in there, to be influencing, and then always there, people just don't think of diversity. They don't think of the things that affect other people unless there's representation in these environments just to say, well, actually, what about this? Or, what about considering that? Because why would they think about it if it's outside of their sort of experience? You can't go to rural Britain and have the same rules as you would have in urban Britain, you know, because you have to adjust to the fact that, you know, there are different ways of thinking, there are different ways of, of going about life. So the more I could do to make that difference is the thing that I think I'm doing to bring so about doing, change. You're doing some practical things with Rittle College. Is that That's right, right yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, I recently launched um, the New Face of Farming initiative. And the, the, the rationale behind that was this. Uh, you know, if you are a 16-year-old kid in any urban environment and you even think, oh, I'd like to go into farming or I'd like to go into agriculture, there is nowhere for you to go to get a taster to find out whether that thing is going to be suitable for you. So all of the agricultural colleges and universities get their students from traditional farming backgrounds. So the whole purpose of this Black, this Black Farmer New Faces initiative is that to give, in, for the first year, we're going to give 20 16 to 18 year olds an opportunity to go down to that college for a whole weekend, we'll pay for everything for them to get a taste there. And if they like it, they can then become part of the, 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 the college. And I want so that like to be made. So well, it'll be, it's a taster, and then they could then um, enroll for any one of those courses. So to give them at least uh, a window into it. Yeah. Uh, and is it for just black and ethnic? Well, it's, it's uh, well, you see, when I talk about um, diversity and inclusion, it doesn't just mean black or Asians, but it also means white working classes. Yeah. Okay. You know, so it's about thing. people who don't actually get a chance to um, see whether working and living in rural Britain is, is, is for them. So I don't care whether you're black, Asian or white, it's those people who are on society's dustbin heap who want to have a break. Those are the people that I would like to sort of inspire and give an opportunity to. Can we do a call out for people now or do you have... Oh yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. yes. So, so basically... People can come and get so, so all they've got to do is that they've got to go onto my website and that's the www.theblackfarmer.com and you'll see a link for the new face of farming. They click on that, there's an application form and then that they apply on that and then it will be, will go through with the college and um, it closes is at the end of September and the first course will be um, the second week in, in October in Black History Month as well that's what we mean. Then, okay. so we'll put the details of all of that okay fine so we, we, we want here. people to do that and what I want is that I want this to be a pilot for every single agricultural college to be doing this um, around the country So, but it's not going to work unless the landowners are also going to do their bit and um, I so 
I've got nothing against um, people having their land handed down through the generations. You know, good luck to them. If they could then help and support other people, that's fine. But there are big, large institutions like the Church of England, like um, National Trust, most big universities. You'll, you'd be amazed the, 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 the organizations and institutions that own land. They'll have a land agent. And that land agent, all he cares about is getting the rent from that land. And he'll go to Mr. Joe Bloggs that's been renting that land for decades, rather than saying something as simple as, you know what, guys, in terms of us contributing our bit to the greater good, let's give, let's say, 3% of our land that's allocated, not to give away, but to be rented exclusively to new entrants. And he'll do a number of things because... One of the things that we want to try and do is that we want to try and start growing and producing the foods that ethnic communities um, consume in this country. It can be done in this, con in this country, but if those people are not in here growing it, you know, that's not going to help with the, the, the economy. But we need these landowners to be doing their bit. Yeah. I would like seeing places like these bigger states doing their bit. So that's where it's back to what we were saying earlier on. There's nothing wrong with privilege. The measure is what you do with that privilege. That's all you've got to ask yourself. Nobody wants to stop you being privileged. But well, what are you doing to help others with that privilege? Mm. So, look, there is a balance to be had. And the balance to be had is that you don't come to a rural setting with the same attitudes um, as you would in, in an urban environment. If you're going to come walking with a dog that's going to be chasing um, cattle, if that dog gets shot... That is your fault, not the farmers, because actually, you know, I've seen animals frying to death. You know, things, sheep, yeah, for sure. example. I see a lot. I mean, yeah. I live rurally and I've seen a lot yeah. of it. It's, and, it's, you know, you said, and, and people don't understand that a sheep would just drop dead because it's been terrified because somebody hasn't seen the discipline of, you know, controlling. It's about respect. Yeah. That actually, you, you, it's a bit like going to a church in a way. You're going to somewhere different <laughs> yes. and and has yeah. to be respected. And and if you break those rules, there are going to be severe consequences. I mean, I was watching something on a on one of these TikToks where somebody had parked their car across a farmer's gate, and the farmer angrily went and got a tractor, picked up this car, and then dumped it. You know, that's pretty extreme, but. What everybody needs to sort of realise, you are welcome, we want to open it up, mm. but there are certain rules to, um, to abide by. It is our responsibility, those of us who live in rural Britain, to be doing the reaching out. There is this expectation that they should appreciate us because we are we are producing the food. No. In inverted commas, custodians of the land. Yeah, I just don't like all that sort of nonsense, basically. It's a bit old-fashioned. We need urban Britain on our side. They're the one with the economical power. We need to be reaching out to them. Because if we do, they will then enable what we're sort of doing. And this thing, somehow, that we're privileged, we're custodians, I just don't think that is the right attitude. I just really think, actually, yeah. we need to be reaching out, welcoming you. Because in the food industry, the reason why the farming industry in this country isn't as good as it could be is because actually it's the it's the supermarkets that have the relationship with the consumers yes. and the consumers are the ones with the power so if you think about the black farmer brand very very successful brand why is it successful because we know that the power is the consumer and we love them and we look after them we think that they're the best very 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 important 
And what I would like to get all farmers to do is to understand that, to reach out. But they should learn. How do you do that? How do you get outside the supermarket's control? Well, but you can do it if you uh, realise you've got to make you you've got to make the effort. So when people buy into the black farmer bind, they're buying for what I stand for. I know that if a, if so they a, can buy directly from you. Is that well, but also you can buy it from the supermarkets. Yeah. There, so because you know supermarkets are there to give consumers what they want. Mm. And everything that you see on the shelf, it hasn't been in, in, innovated by the supermarkets, it's by the consumer. Why do we have free-range eggs? It's cheaper for supermarkets to do battery eggs. They're doing it because the consumer is demanded. And therefore, we farmers need to make a friend of the consumers. And if they could understand that, that's part of what they, tr they should be trained to reach out. Anybody in a rural community, part of what they should be doing is to go and spend two weeks, three weeks in a, in a city environment so they can make those connections because that is what's going to secure our future. Okay, so an appeal to farmers, to landowners. Well, 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 I think so, you know, like with these agriculture colleges, you know, you should be twinning with schools in urban environments. We've got to work harder. Now, there's a lot of things that's happened recently that means people are going to have to start thinking. Getting rid of the single payment mm. is, is yeah, a... Yeah, the subsidies. Subsidies, yeah. because subsidies made farmers lazy. It just meant that, you know... You, you you could get on by because you're all, you're always being constantly subsidised. Now that's taken away. You've got to really get your act together. Yeah. So or go to the wall. Or go to the wall, mm. and therefore um, I would like to see a lot more farmers' cooperatives where and farmers' cooperatives who are directly communicating with the with with the consumer because the consumer wants to have relationships. So again, if a guy from Small Heath in Birmingham. Society's dustbin heap can create a brand which is all about communicating with the consumer. That is a template of what is possible. Mm. Okay. Let's, have, let's finish on uh, one. I did want to ask you where you do get your pigs from if they're not on your. No, so, so how, I, how I work then. So, my model is what they call a white label model. I, every, every one of our products, we do not make them at all. What we do is that we work with processors, manufacturers to make it to our spec yeah. because they have the buying power. So, for example, my sausages are made by Cranswick. Now, there are, f there are four big players in the pork industry. Cranswick, Tulip, Caro, and, and one of them, I can't remember. And that, because they have so much power, they then control the price. So if I tried to do it, it you know, it just would never be economical. So my, my model has always been, well, they're not very good at innovation. That's what I'm good at, okay? This is the spec. You buy in that spec, you manufacture it to that spec, and then I then... Um, so sort of your recipe. Your my recipe yeah, yeah, and everything yeah. like that. So with our sausages, for example, for two years running, we are the which best buy sausage, because again, the spec and what I sort of demanded. When we launched, we were the first people ever to do gluten-free sausages. Mm. So that, 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 that's, the, that's the way the model works. So that's why farmers need to get together as a cooperative so they could get the, the volume in order to be, for it to be commercially viable. And so in my case, I work with processors because, you know, they have contracts with all these farmers mm -hmm. and then work to my spec. Brilliant. So for my final question, just um, those young, perhaps young black people, young Asian urban people who are a little bit nervous about going out into the countryside, what would you say to them? Well, what I would say is this. Um, I say to a lot of black people, one of the, when you look in the mirror, you should see that you are um, from very entrepreneurial people. There is something very entrepreneurial with your mom, your dad, 
maybe your grandparent, to have the courage to leave a, your country and everything you're familiar with to actually come to another country in order to better your life and the life of your children. So you've got that gift of being entrepreneurial. Your parents have done the first step by coming here. Don't think in order to be true to their vision, you've got to branch out from these enclaves that um, has made them secure within these towns and cities. In order to make that dream actually come true, it's our responsibility, the second and third generation, to branch out in order to actually claim the rest of the Britain as their own, to bring new ideas, to bring innovation. That's part of what makes it. So go for it. Get, on, a, get on the train, get in the car, absolutely climb go hills. For, go for it. You know, go out there. And also understand that it's about... The, the rules are different. They're very, very different. So don't come there thinking that how the, the rules that apply living in an urban environment is going to work in the countryside. You're not going to bring about a change in attitude until you have more black people living in rural Britain. Okay. That's, that's, you know, until there's more, things are not going to change unless somebody's there telling them. Because, you know, it's a bit like what I was telling you about my experience of being black. Well, because you've never experienced it. You know, why would you know? Brilliant life lessons and, and insight. Okay. Thank well, you thank so you very, very much. much. It's been, yeah, it's yeah, been yeah. Really great. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Well, that was the wonderful Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, the black farmer, and he talked about so many interesting subjects there. And there's lots to unpick, really, lots to chat about. I'm glad I have my two very good podcast friends, Jack, the producer, and Hannah, my helper and editor. Hello. 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 How nice to see you both. But um, one that's so obvious is town versus country. I, well, I've, I've lived the first 10 years of my life in the country, then the next sort of 25 years in the town, and now the last 12 years back in the country. You know, I've lived in three big cities, London, Bristol, and Liverpool. There is, as Wilfred points out, there are massive differences. He talks a lot about racism, and, well, he talks a lot about attitudes to ethnic minorities. And I thought that was very interesting, his... People using what might be considered racist terms didn't mean that they were racist, that it was just a sort of, it's a, a matter of not understanding and that a lot of rural people that he knows and mixes amongst uh, use terms which, terms not to use, like coloured. But for Wilfred, 
clearly he can accept that the intention isn't there. From that example, for him, he can understand why they may use the words they use. But I guess from a wider picture sort of view, how helpful is it to not point out why some people may not uh, understand their reasons and may find the words they use offensive? And I guess it, that's sort of the, the balancing act here. Of- oh, gosh. Uh, I, I, one of the things is when you do move to a smaller community, it's you don't want to kind of... You will hear things that are offensive, and like you will hear things that are offensive in a city, but you've got a massive community. You're not likely to see these people again. I've had people, you know, people around for dinner, who's, and when you're in the process of making friends, when you move to a new area, and people have said really things that I found very offensive about perhaps ethnic minorities and immigrants, for example. And you're sitting around the table, and what do you say? Do you have a row there and then? It's really difficult because I know that the, you know, the noble thing should be to instantly pick people up on the. Oh, I don't think it should ever be a row. No, but but you know what I mean. If 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 you did, you have to judge the situation. But I can, I've definitely got into quite feisty conversation very very quickly by saying that's that's wrong. It's that problem when you call someone out. And they don't feel like they should be called out or they didn't, even if they didn't mean it and it's just happened, yeah. you suddenly go into, I think a lot of people, you just go into defence mode, which is then why that conflict begins. But there can be a reaction to embarrassment as well, yeah. can't it? It's well, like gosh, yes. yeah, you're yeah. trying to save face by like digging your heels in. Which is why it's very difficult to raise these things when people say you should always, always challenge behaviour. But um, it's quite hard. That trickiness at the I think especially in recent years it's sort of es- sort of escalated with how people react with it, but it is it's from everything it's race, it's sexuality, it's gender it's every every sort of minority or group of people will have terms that they don't enjoy they don't agree with it isn't correct and I think it is now, especially just in terms of in, in with the sort of technology as well these days, is people are more free to voice opinions and to battle if they think something's correct or not correct. And I think it just makes it so difficult that you can't really. Oh, it's, that's the point that Wilfred was making. I think as well, it's like uh, it's about the intention. If you say something that is incorrect with air quotes, and you you don't mean it to be offensive then that is a completely different thing. But I can see how then it's exhausting for people who live, who are existing within the environments where they're highly educated and they know exactly what to say um, to be constantly telling people that this isn't what we say anymore. Like it's, I can see how people get frustrated because people should be educated and they should be educating themselves in order to like progress society. But... It's a it's a whole thing. Yes. The balance is difficult. Perspective and stuff play plays into it because with his nickname of the Black Farmer, mm. for example, some people would see that as actually with using that nickname, he's highlighting what he's what he's been speaking about. It's that he's one of the first, or he yeah. is one of the only, which way. is sort of from some perspectives is highlighting there is an issue there. But I guess from another point of view, a name like that is sort of suggesting that. He's the only one that can do that. What's the if you're in a similar position to him, will you ever get to where he is? Because 
he's already there. And so I guess that's a perspective thing. Does that name he calls himself the black benefit farmer. of cause so, so, or yeah. Yeah. So not benefit his cause? There can't be any other black farmers in that sort of business yeah. Of, yeah. Um, of, of a brand name like that yeah. because he's sort of taken that ground. He, he was sort of saying very much up to the black and Asian community and white working class to, to sort of seize the day, to, to, to go out into the countryside and make it theirs, as it were. I think that's, that's kind of what he was getting at. In terms of what he's been saying, though, I think there's one thing that sort of connects everyone is that he mentioned how, for him, you don't necessarily need qualifications or you need awards or anything like that to be successful in something. I think it seems to me that he believes that just having a passion for what you believe in or a passion for what you enjoy has the potential to take you anywhere, uh, just as much as a qualification would. And well, that's really interesting. Gosh, he, I mean, we got a potted history of his his CV, which was amazing to hear his story of how he was just persistent. He also mentions focus, know where you want to go. And uh, I wish I'd heard, I wish I'd had that pep talk when I was 20. At least you guys have still got it all ahead of you. <laughs> I think it's quite a hard thing to do. I know personally through sort of school and education, there is sort of that focus on go down your route, learn your subjects. Actually, it doesn't really matter if you enjoy it or you're passionate about that topic as long as you get those those good grades. And I think sometimes maybe that puts some people off of actually what they're passionate about and pursuing that passion because you suddenly find out you're good, in quotation marks, at a subject, you get a good grade in it and it takes you down that path because you're seen as being better in that subject. We're actually maybe following something you're passionate about that's not uh, maybe a, a typical subject at school, for example. You may have gone a completely different route and actually in maybe enjoyed or found more benefits from doing that. I think it's really interesting how he was talking about dyslexia as being an asset and that being in a formal education setting, forcing people to think outside the box and that being a real kind of training ground for being entrepreneurial, finding those kind of different ways of approaching problems. It was one of those things which you, we do live in a very data-driven world now, particularly in publishing and what we're doing these days. It's a data numbers game at times. And actually, we're three of us are sat around the table because we're passionate about the countryside and doing things outdoors. And so we're kind of got that tension between wanting to just go off into the wild and 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 then we've got to come back and have these cold conversations about data yeah <laughs> and we're just saying data tells you what has happened but not... data doesn't innovate i thought yeah. that was fantastic yeah 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 i think it's interesting like even some of the episodes we've done this series like uh, i think it's episode 155 with antonio and his farm setup i think if you weren't passionate about what you were doing for example, if he necessarily wasn't passionate about it and was just farming to be a farmer, following what the rules of farming is and what traditionally is correct for farming. Yeah, yeah following the percentages. That stuff wouldn't happen. You wouldn't mm. it sort of innovate on those things. And I think that's where passion is such a key driver in these things. If you're passionate about something, you're able to innovate. You're able to push what's expected of certain things i doubt we've ever had a more passionate man on the podcast than <laughs> apart from myself than uh, antonio palladino uh because his hydroponic fish farm vegetables well yeah the way he was sort of sensually talking about his uh mange too 
have a listen. I think it was really interesting how um, Wilfred was talking about the inheritance of land perpetuating the status quo. You sort of, people who have always been on the land, staying on the land, and there being no innovation there. Yeah, well, that, and very well. He was linked that to subsidies as well. So he was all for getting rid of subsidies and forcing everybody to innovate. But that's a really tricky one. I mean, obviously, we work in a business that isn't supported by subsidies, so we have to constantly be on our toes the whole time. But then we're not managing the land for the greater good. We're not managing yes, exactly flood water so or drought or you know yeah. we, we we're kind of providing we're not providing public services apart from a nice little audio experience every twice a week well it has to that's why there are subsidies coming in but there's so many arguments raging about whether they should be for public good or just the amount of land you own or how much food you produce it is moving towards the public good so providing you know, flood defenses or providing habitat for wildlife Again, the arguments rage about it and it's not clear cut what one person's idea of public good is and another isn't. But he was sort of saying that it was responsibility of landowners and farmers to do more to kind of convince the wider population, particularly urban population, uh, to, to sort of win them over. Landowning, and there's a privilege with landowning. And then there comes a responsibility with that privilege. He was saying he was fine with privilege as long as you do the right thing with the privilege. So quite enlightening to hear, to hear that from a landowner to sort of say, we need to do more to encourage people into the countryside. Then he was talking about the rules that you have to follow when you go to the countryside, which again is sort of, not all of them are clearly defined to people who come from urban, you know, I, I live in the countryside, I kind of understand. But it all comes down to education again, doesn't it? We've talked about how little the countryside code is talked about in schools. So in some ways, you can't really blame people for not knowing and especially when we talk about the countryside as a place for like people to be free and to enjoy themselves, um, it can appear sometimes to people in urban environments that it's a kind of wonderland of your self-expression. And so it can appear as though it's just a pleasure garden. When people work really, really hard on the land, and it's, goodness, with the drought we've got at the moment, it is savage for farmers and anybody who's trying to make a living from the countryside. And then they see people coming down and having these jolly times. And I guess, you know, I, I've published lots of articles, there's lots of travel pieces about heading to the countryside to find freedom. And But actually, it probably comes across as, oh, goodness me, just had, like, it, it might sort of feel like it's rubbing it in, people just having a sort of relaxing, fun time when you're working so hard. So that might be a cause of tension. It'd be good to hear from you as a listener. Um, oh, definitely. Your thoughts on it. And if you've got any views or opinions, I think it's worth hearing from as many people on these topics as possible. Definitely. And we will read out your emails. And you can find the email address in the description of this podcast. But uh, I, here it is it's editor at countryfile.com. You can contact me and I will happily, happily uh, read them out. Or well, Hannah can read them out or Jack can <laughs> read them out. If we get lots, we'll be reading them out over weeks. And while we're reading stuff out, can you reiterate the details of the New Face of Farming initiative that Wilfred's running? It's a really interesting project that Wilfred's got going, trying to get people from ethnic minorities and the poorer communities out into the countryside and experiencing it. But find out more about it on his website, which is theblackfarmer.com. And all the details are there about how you can get involved. So that was where I was this week, out in the wilds of Wiltshire. How about you two guys? Moving on to really deep, the really deep stuff. 
I have had adventures. I've uh, just come back from a week-long scout camp. <gasps> I'm just going to give Jack the podcast medal for bravery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, a nice uh, week down in uh, Swansea. Those different activities, cooking over fire. Camping uh, out in the woods with uh, supervising lots of... Yeah, young, lots of young children. Yeah. 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 You've got these hollow eyes of a man who hasn't slept very well. He's sort of had, had loads of responsibilities heaped on him. I think when you when you sort out a lot of activities for uh, teenage teenagers and spending quite a long uh, a week worth of nights on sort of the hard forest floor, uh, <laughs> oh, it does tire you out a bit. Yeah, <laughs> oh, well done, absolutely heroic. So yeah, they all went home. Very tired as well, which is normally a good, good sign. Yeah. Um, but yeah, lo- loads of stuff. We did archery, tomahawk throwing, which is not as dangerous as it sounds. <laughs> it um, sounds quite dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I just take my hat off now in admiration to you. I had a parental breakthrough, wild, like a nature dad breakthrough this week. <laughs> I went for a walk along the river with um, my son, Owen, who is 12 and was in a... R- not the greatest mood. It's like, Dad, why have you dragged me for another walk? Walks are so boring. And that sheep was the most perfect walk along the river. It was just... Anyway, we were walking back and, you know, we were just chatting and explaining about that. I was trying to explain about the joys of the countryside. And a grasshopper hopped out of the long grass ahead. And it was as if, like, a, a switch went. And so, suddenly he was, oh, what was that? And this grasshopper leapt after it caught it in his hands eventually and looked at it. And then for the next hour, we were grasshopper hunting and, and letting them go. All of them, no grasshoppers were harmed, but we caught lots of different species and we began to sort of listen to the different noises they make. Oh, it was, it was magic. And since then, we've had two more grasshopper expeditions. It's just, you never know when it's going to strike. That's pretty. But it, it's, uh, it's just seeing him roaming through the long grass, totally fixated, reminded me of the kind of fixation of, the hunt (laughs) so happy days happy days um it also goes back to that not thinking of them as just just grasshoppers just insects being able to pick out the individual species really like opens it up for you as a child it's like there's a whole world of things for you to learn about here yeah fascinating how they how different they all are and how they play little different tunes and chirrups or long zithers and then it was time to go to the pub so it was an amazing sort of transformation so i can recommend if anybody's having summer holiday trouble with the with the kids and you're near a long grassy meadow another good reason to leave your grass long that's a good point actually how are people gonna be entertaining their children in the countryside this summer you have any have you got any tips jack um a good one get people out and about Especially young young people, geocaching oh, cool. is a good way of getting out and about. You don't need to go far for it because they're everywhere. Basically, the concept is people have hidden little boxes or containers. Some of them are quite easy to find. Some of them a bit more difficult. And basically, you're just trying to find these hidden boxes that have little bits in. You find it, write your little name on a piece of paper, and normally take a thing out and put so leave something back in it. Oh yeah. Okay. They're, they're, that's, that's a good way. I think it's it's I think they're all around the world. You got you got a phone app, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I think there's a phone app. Um I think there's an official version. There's probably some other versions as well. Um 
but you can usually see where they're located. You just got to find them, hunt them down. Um, but it gets you out and about because they're they're everywhere. They're rural, they're remote. They're well, why all... why don't we do a lunchtime geocache? <laughs> let's, let's go for <laughs> let's it. Let's do it. We <laughs> could record there's, it. Yeah. There's normally they're, they're everywhere. Three big children, basically. Mm. Yeah. That's a great one as well because it doesn't require an awful lot of like knowledge. With guess it's like you don't need to know what kind of tree you're looking at. You just need to be able to read a map properly. Yeah, it's, it's treasure hunt vibes. It's, yeah, it's virtual. It's sort of real life technology virtual uh, treasure hunt. You can see where it is on your phone. You go to that place. It could be out in the middle of a field somewhere, and you're looking for the tiny, tiniest little screw in a fence post. It's a fake screw. You pull it out, and you've got a. That's exactly what we experienced. Just really cunningly hidden. Great. How about you, Hannah? What was what would tease you? Mm, mine is also hunt related. Um, one of my absolute favourite things that my mum used to do for us when um, we were little was nature hunts. So she would write a list of things that we had to find, and then on our walks we would be specifically looking for a red stone, a purple leaf, and this was made all the more fun because we could beat each other. I could find it before my brother. I could um, competitive <laughs> yeah. hunting competitive yes there's a load of options that you can easily they don't young people don't typically like to just go for a walk or to go outside necessarily just to somewhere they don't really know but as soon as you sort of throw a twist on it mm. and you turn it into a treasure hunt or you turn it into some sort of expedition or they're trying to find something or trying to catch something or just trying to get somewhere and that's the the challenge or the mission. Suddenly, it seems a lot more appealing and a more more game like. And actually, they're doing the same thing as you were planning to do. But to them, it's this really fun activity. But you've just kind of, in a way, you've tricked them, tricked them <laughs> into doing it. And I think it's unrealistic to expect children to have an innate love of nature. Like mm. it's, I think it's making children comfortable in that space so that when they grow up, they realise like they can appreciate it more. They have a sense of what it is. We've talked about so much there. Perhaps we should leave it there for now and carry on next week where we're having a lovely adventure with wild honeybees. So that's going to be exciting. Buzzing for that. Now, thanks firstly to Wilfred for his amazing insight into the rural world and to Hannah and Jack for the lovely chat. And to you all for listening, join us next week. But for now, goodbye. <laughs>